Hello out there, Undertow listeners, and welcome to episode number 16 of the Undertow podcast. This, of course, is the podcast dedicated to the crime comics of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Uh, Tonight, we're diving into Kill or Be Killed number 11, which is the uh, most recent issue in the ongoing Brubaker and Phillips series, Kill or Be Killed. As always, you can find our episodes at undertow.podbean.com. We are on iTunes. You can uh, find us on Twitter at Undertow Podcast, or you can send us an email, Adventure Frustrations, undertowpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be happy to hear from you in any of those fashions. Uh, if you would like to, if you enjoy the show, give us a review on iTunes. That always helps us spread the word about the show. Um, I am Robert Watson here in Columbia, Missouri, and I've also got my more qualified co-host on the other side of the line, Bubba Beasley. Thank you, Robert. Hey, everyone. Bubba, of course, blogs at criminalcomic.blogspot.com. Keeps everybody up to date on all the latest news, which is uh, how we're going to kick off the episode as always. I will hand things off to Bubba, and he can uh, fill us in. Uh, certainly. For those who um, who visit the blog, uh, criminalcomic.blogspot.com, you'll see that, that some of these news items are um, ones we've already covered, and they're a little, little bit older, but they're worth mentioning here. So number one, um, solicitations continue to come out for uh, Kill or Be Killed, with uh, the most recent being uh, for issue number 14 in November. And it's been announced that that's going to be the, the end of this uh, third arc. For those of us who are uh, reading the monthly comics, what this means is that that these four issues, 11, which we're talking about tonight, 12, 13, and 14, the, these covers are going to comprise a, um, a montage, uh, a single image when you lay them all together. And my guess would be that if at some point um, Sean Phillips and Ed Brubaker release a um, – a, a, a deluxe hardcover um, of the series of this series, and probably more than one, since this will be an ongoing. That the first volume will comprise these first three arcs. So, you know, the 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 first major arc should be wrapping up by the end of the year, which means I would imagine that that this arc, this volume three, will be collected in a trade paperback coming out maybe December. I would guess more likely January, and the the new arc. Um, with issue uh, 15 will also, I would guess, kick off in uh, in um, January, February. So probably January would be my guess. Um, while Sean Phillips has continued to work on Kill or Be Killed, he's been working on other projects as well. Um, Ian Rankin, a, uh, a British uh, mystery writer who's also written a, actually a couple comic books, including one for uh, the Vertigo crime imprint, um, his detective or uh, Rebus is celebrating um, its his 30th anniversary as a uh, fictional character, and uh, they're releasing this year an anniver- a 30th anniversary box set comprising uh, of the first book in hardcover, the I think 10th book in hardcover, and the 20th book, and that collection will also include uh, 10 um, black and white postcards with artwork by Sean Phillips. Um, another project that uh, Phillips has been working on is um, beer, Femme Fatale beer. So in, um, in celebration of OK Comics' 15th uh, birthday, OK Comics, a store in Leeds, England, um, the comic store has commissioned a, um, a beer called Femme Fatale um, that is going to be brewed by a local brewing company, North Brewing Company. Uh, and available at uh, Tallboy's Beer Market um, next door to the comic book shop 
all in uh, Leeds, England, uh, available the weekend of the uh, the Thought Bubble Comic Art Festival. And um, in addition to the the uh, beer cans with four different works of art of um, classic Hollywood femme fatales uh, by Sean Phillips. Um, Prints of the same Mark work will also be available um, at that comic book store on that weekend. But uh, an update from from my uh, blog post covering this is that Sean Phillips has announced that if he does not sell all the prints that over that weekend, he will uh, be selling uh, any extras, any leftovers on his uh, online store. So, um, yeah, and those are quite those are quite striking too. Yep, they're they're essentially uh, two color. Um, uh, two color prints of Lauren Bacall, Rita Hayworth, Veronica Lake, and Jean Tierney, and yeah, they are they are gorgeous, absolutely. So, um, and then the uh, the third project is the Spirit newspaper for um, for another comic art festival uh, in in the in England. Um, that would be the. Um, Lakes International Comic Art Festival in October, while the uh, the Thought Bubble is coming up later this month in September, the um, Lakes International Festival. Um, I believe Sean Phillips lives a lot closer to this festival. It's in uh, Kendal um, in Cumbria um, in England, and he's doing quite a bit of work on a um, on a Will Eisner. Uh, centenary project, the 100th uh, anniversary of, of Will Eisner's birth, including a newspaper-sized um, comic um, featuring Eisner's most famous creation, uh, the spirit, the vigilante uh, hero, the masked vigilante. And um, Phillips is coordinating the artwork, and as he's been getting stuff in, he's been showing more and more previews uh, of uh, that artwork on uh, social media. And Everything I've seen looks looks beautiful. Uh, Ed Brubaker and uh, Sean Phillips themselves are contributing a one-page story. So, um, outside of you know Criminal and all their created creator own work, and and, and I think it's their first um, uh, licensed work together since uh, Sleeper, uh, way back in the uh, with uh, way back in the early 2000s with uh, Wildstorm, the DC imprint. Um, still not sure whether that. Um, spirit newspaper uh, collection will be available outside of the uh, comic art fest but I'm definitely looking into it and anything I find out I'll relay both in the podcast and uh, and on the blog so um, the only other big news is going back from John Phillips projects to Brubaker and Phillips is we have more info on the criminal novella uh, for those of you readers who do get the monthly issues, do read the back matter, the the back essays. Uh, recently, about you know classic uh, um, crime movies have are always worth reading, always beautifully illustrated, often by Sean Phillips, but more recently by by his uh, adult son Jacob. Um, but there's also um, a uh, letters page, a writer's page from uh, Ed Brubaker. It's uh, called The Secret Ingredient, and that's a re- an allusion to um, a line that he picked up from some old book or old movie um, that, you know, that the secret ingredient is crime. And um, in this in this page, he uh, Br- Brubaker gives us more, more details 
about the uh, criminal graphic novella that we've been reporting about the last couple months. Um, Just read it verbatim. As for Criminal, I'm currently writing the script for what's going to be a graphic novella that Sean is going to draw on the side as he does Kill or Be Killed, because he's that driven. So hopefully sometime next year in the summer or fall. It'll be similar in format to that recent Neil Gaiman graphic novella, How to Talk to Girls at Parties, that Gabriel Ba and Fabio Moon did. And it stars a character from the very first criminal story, but not Gnarly or Leo, for those criminal fans out there looking for clues but not answers. So this confirms that that they're planning to release this next year. It confirms that Sean Phillips will be working on it and that he'll be working on it uh, simultaneously with his um, work on the uh, on Kill or Be Killed, the, the, the monthly uh, serialized uh, series, um, but we also have more information about about the uh, the timing. So hopefully summer or fall. So uh, Sean will be working on it you know, from now until until then. Um, so plenty of time to work on it. Um, <clears throat> but also the format. He mentions the uh, graphic novella uh, How to Talk to Girls at Parties, ba- and what it is is based on a short story by Neil Gaiman. And I think that raised the question um, in my mind and in others, you know, does this mean that it's more of an illustrated uh, novel? You know, is it, is it more of a prose novel with illustrations by Sean Phillips? And I did track down the book um, and took a look at it. And it's it is it, it is a comic book. It's just a comic book that was never released in a serialized format. Um, it was released directly in a, a single uh, volume, um, 64 pages, um, you know, retailing for 18 bucks, and it's Neil Gaiman has done what I would consider more illustrated novels. I think the the most famous would be um, Stardust, which um, he did with illustrations by uh, Charles Vess, and and that really was an illustrated. Um, uh, illustrated story. It reads like a fairy tale where you could could read it at, read it to someone, you know, uh, across the uh, the fireplace, with it, and then show the pictures or even not show the pictures. I believe they they released a um, a smaller version of the book without the illustrations when um, when the the uh, film adaptation came out with uh, Claire Danes and strangely enough Michelle Pfeiffer and Robert De Niro, um, but. Yeah, the uh, How to Talk to Girls at Parties, it is a straightforward um, comic book. It, it much more closely fits uh, Scott McCloud's definition of, of comics as, as sequential art. And I'd imagine that, that we'll see the same thing with Criminal. Though, if you look at uh, Kill or Be Killed Now, um, there's a page or two, particularly where the narration is along the, the uh, side on a, you know the vertical white space alongside a single illustration. Um, where the illustration is not necessarily tied to the narration, where where the line between comic and illustrated prose really begins to blur. So, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Is just because I, I'll be curious to see um, how they approach criminal because the criminal guidelines were so rigid, um, you know, with the uh, with the grid format that that we've gotten so used to with with criminal. So, but now, like you said, they are playing with the form more in Killer Be Killed. Um, and doing some more different styles through the same book, so it'll be interesting to see if they go back to that grid, that real rigid grid format with uh, with Criminal, or if we get something looser. I I don't know where they're headed on that. Yeah, and to what extent they, that they've already 
been kind of bending the rules within criminal. It's usually been for a very specific purpose, like with the yeah. um, uh, the comic within a comic in the last two um, two one shots. So. Yeah, and I was just going to um, add one more thing there on that Spirit comic that uh, that Sean Phillips is working on too. Um, the uh, the Lakes International Comic Art Festival does have a podcast itself called the Comic Art Festival Podcast. So um, you can find out more information on that. Uh, their website's comicartpodcast.wordpress.com. Um, so hopefully, maybe something will will be revealed through the podcast. Um, or uh, other channels about the availability of that spirit comic because the, the yeah the the little teasers I've seen on social media look look quite nice uh, that looks like it will be a, a cool project for sure so hopefully those are available outside of the UK yeah I mean it's it's twelve artists who um, some very big name artists and I think one of the most uh, recent things that uh, Sean Phelps tweeted was a picture of the cover art. So 12 massive – he describes it as 12 massive pages of awesome spirit stories, and you see a detail of each of the 12 stories on the uh, front cover. The the spirit of Eisner is the name of the paper. So, yeah. Yeah, in the back matter that we're talking about in these monthly books, uh, yeah, definitely check that out. If you're on the fence between um, buying the trades or buying the monthly issues, uh, you know, both Bubba and I, I think, highly subscribe to the – to the monthly issues, and like I said, the back matter is great. Um, the newsletter, Ed Brubaker's newsletter, seems to have kind of dried up here the last few months. So um, that's a good window into kind of uh, a behind the scenes and uh, what's going on with Ed. You know, he gives some insight. Usually, get one or two pages. He's been, you know, answering some fan letters, um, and then just some little nuggets like we got on the uh, criminal novella. He also there this last this issue number eleven that we're talking about tonight. Um, he gave a nice list of uh, noir films that. That he was really into. I watched. Uh, I watched Out of the Past based on his recommendation as his favorite noir film. He said it might be his favorite film ever. Um, so yeah, definitely. Uh, like I said, the the back matter is an is a nice addition to to a quality comic for sure. Yep. And on the subject of the newsletter, I do believe the newsletter is uh, coming back. And I guess that I, I don't like to bury bury the lead, but I guess um, uh, I did reach out to. To Ed Brubaker um, by email, you know, criminalcomic at gmail, um, the the email address that they 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 list in the uh, back issues, and he said he's just been been too swamped to get the newsletter out. But with a new issue, with issue number twelve just around the corner, he is uh, hoping to get a uh, get back on the ball with the uh, the email newsletters in addition to the back matter. So, okay, cool. Yeah, that's that. Well, that's a nice piece of news, Bubba. Yeah. Reporting exclusively here, and hopefully, we'll, you know, hopefully Ed doesn't mind. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, we will go ahead and give our spoiler warning for the issue, so you'll definitely want to read issue number eleven prior to listening to the rest of the podcast, because we're going to dive into every aspect of the issue. Um, More violent than I thought it was going to be. Happily, I was happy to 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 see the you know the the ultra violence to to. Use the phrase yes. from Clockwork Orange, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the ultraviolence is back, um, and so we we open with a revisiting of the series opening scene, so we're finally back to that. We've finally gone full circle, and we're back to that, that opening scene that, that Bubba and I have been hammering on time and time again about when are we going to get back to this opening scene. So um, we are back there, kind of. Yeah, we're um, taking a we, lap, but we're not back there for the last time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it teases. It's a, it's a little bit of a tease, but but anyway, it opens. The artwork's exactly the same. Uh, I believe it's exactly the same as the 
um, the very first issue, that intro scene. But of course, the the narration is different. It's kind so, of. It's kind of. I, I at first glance, when the preview for this came out, I thought, oh, they're they're, they're redoing, they're republishing the same artwork. And I took a closer look comparing the preview from issue one to the preview of issue 11, and my thought is maybe they're going to come back to this every 10 issues. So issue 21, we'll see this scene again, and eventually we'll see how it ties together. But it does look like it's, it, it's redrawn. If you um, go to the, uh, to the blog on the most recent post I actually did um, – or no, on the uh, post previewing this issue, I – Put together kind of a collage of side by uh, side. a side by side of page two from both previews, and it's not only definitely different colors from uh, Betty Brightweiser, it's also slightly different line work. It, it looks like it was definitely drawn from the the um, from the artwork. So it, it you know Sean Phillips tracing it again, but. Subtle de- differences in details. Panels are moved moved around a little bit. There are new panels um, replacing older panels. So it, it it's a sense of deja vu, obviously, but not an exact duplication. So yeah, that's cool. I'm gonna have to check that out on the blog because I haven't I hadn't put them side by side, and I uh, so I didn't know if there were any subtle changes or not. Um, but yeah, the framing of the pages and the 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 angles and stuff are very similar to to that first scene when we were first introduced to Dylan. Um, and Dylan is in full-on hitman mode, um, efficiently taking out a whole crew um, of what he refers to as bad guys um, and mentions in his narration that um, this entire story has been the longest flashback in history. And, uh, yeah, like I said, it's just... Uh, it, it really felt like, like Ed was speaking to us in the opening narration, answering all of these questions, like I said, that we keep hammering on every episode, things like... When are we going to get back to the opening scene? How has Dylan transitioned into this badass, cold and methodical killer? Um, and then Dylan mentions, hey, you can't flash forward to something and never actually arrive there later. Yeah. It, it, either Ed or Dylan is listening to the podcast and, you know, welcome, guys. We really do appreciate and, – and Ed or Dylan, not Ed and Sean. So that's uh, – I really appreciate their, uh, their, their joining yeah. us. Yeah. But no, so there was some, yeah, there was definitely some gratification in the opening scene. Like I said, some of the some of these things were addressed, um, but then the story then does in fact flash back to after issue number ten ended. So the intro is sort of another fake out. So we see that Dylan is in fact back at uh, Doctor Mather's office. So we're introduced to this um, psychiatrist, I assume, or therapist of some sort, and he's been mentioned in the comic, but we haven't actually seen this character. Uh, so this was Dylan's former psychiatrist uh, from when he was a child. We don't really know what age, but he talks about him in the past tense. So Dylan is back in Dr. Mather's office. Mather's looks very much like a kind of a professorial Colonel Sanders, I guess. It would yeah. be the closest thing I could say. Yep. Um, and uh, so Mather's is you know, promising to be checking in with the pharmacy to make sure Dylan is getting his prescriptions filled. So... Um, there's a cool thing there in this scene with, with Dr. Mathers, you know, with the artwork. I, I took note that at the, in the first couple of shots, the doctor's office, you know, seems pretty benign. Um, but then we start, it transitions subtly into these close-ups of Dr. Mathers, and there's kind of an ominous shadow floating around behind him, um, which just, you know, like I said, it's subtle, but it's definitely there. So 
you, you just get this kind of, you know, something sinister, you know, or like just a hint of the demon floating around behind him. It's the same kind of thing you see in Dylan's apartment as well. But, but like I said, as the as the angle moves in closer to Doctor Mathers, there's just this kind of this this shadow on the wall behind him. Yeah. And then there's an interesting there's an interesting line. I thought Doctor Mathers is is talking to Dylan about about Dylan addressing his disease and taking his meds, and he says, "I know it isn't easy, but you need to be vigilant," which I thought was an interesting use of that word, since we all know that you know. Vigilant and vigilante are are very similar. Yep, and, and and in this scene, we don't learn as much about uh, Dylan's past as we could. We do know that there was a previous attempted uh, suicide that got his, um, his his college career off off rails, and I and I assume that that Doctor Mathers what wasn't became involved in Dylan's life at least at that point. But you're you're right that it could be earlier than that. Um, particularly, you know, this <laughs> Dylan is the um, the child of a man who committed suicide as well. So, um, yeah, lots um, of trauma. He's had lots of trauma in his life. Yep. So, so we, but we have a lot of it implied, a lot of it unstated. Um, both the the existing relationship between Dylan and Matt and Doctor Mathers, um, and the previous problems with Dylan and like you say, with the artwork, the, uh, the sense of, of dread or foreboding, if not about, about the possibly about the doctor or, or the office, but at very least about the, the issue, you know, about what, you know, the mental issues that Dylan is dealing with that put simply, he is not a well man and he hasn't been for a very long time. So, yeah, and it's interesting that he would end up back with Dr. Mathers. I mean, we know so we know he's basically been um shaken up by by the events that have happened in the last couple issues, you know, main, namely his uh his accidental shooting of um his drug dealer. But before, you know, when his mom had mentioned, "Oh, maybe you should go see Dr. Mathers," you know, he was basically completely dismissive of the idea and said like I can't remember the exact line, but you know, well, I know, I know for sure that's not a good idea, and just you know, had hinted at, you know, something in the past that had you know not gone well with Doctor Mathers. Whether it's yeah, whether it's Mathers up to something sinister or just a set of circumstances, we don't know those details. But yeah, I so I wasn't surprised that he was in therapy, but it was interesting that he was back with uh, the same doctor that he had you know basically been completely dismissive of before, just a couple issues ago. And we don't really see what convinced him to do this. You know, we, we don't see that conversation or we just we just jump back in where he is. He is, you know, back in therapy. Yeah, it's it's fairly I think the motivation is on the assumption that um, that the demon is just a, in his head, just a, a delusion, a figment of his imagination. And with his his the uh, his quote-unquote friend rex who is selling him um at least a, at least once selling him um medication that was you know that was a placebo that wasn't doing anything um with with rex out of the picture and the idea that the demon is just a delusion he needs to get back on his meds even if that does mean yeah the the, the line you were talking about from issue 10 his mother his uh, older his elderly mother recommending going to see dr mathers again in narration he says 
yeah, right, like I'm going to see my old shrink and just start blabbing. That's an even worse idea than becoming some mass vigilante in the first place. And and there again, there's there's that word vigilante pretty explicitly, and we see vigilant during the in the conversation. But yeah. he's trying to leave leave behind the roughly you know four months, five months, I think five months of of being a serial killer, um, and putting that behind him. Um, and trying to get his life back on track and trying to get me- – he needs medication so that he doesn't see the- see what he believes to be a delusion. And the most obvious source is the old shrink even if he can't be anything remotely you know, reasonably honest with him. So. Yeah, that's a good point. And we find out you know, the, there's a nice large shot right after this scene with the doctor um, of Dylan walking down the street where it's very obviously fall out. So – um, again, we've changed seasons. We've transitioned from from summer to fall. You know, really, it's interesting, and I'll dive into this more later. But we get kind of a it's it's kind of a Halloween themed issue that we get this month. There's several references to that. Yeah, like like Bubba said, at this point, Dylan thinks you know he is done with the killing thing. He's trying to get back to some semblance of a normal routine. So he talks about he's focusing on schoolwork again. Um, and he hasn't seen the demon in over a month, so he's in his mind he's accepted that hey, you know, this was just a, a figment of my imagination. And he, uh, we see a we see a shot of him in the attic, and he's using a typewriter to to write this resignation letter. Um, he's resigning as a vigilante through this kind of over the top, full on revolutionary type extreme letter to the paper. Um, about his motivations for doing what he's done. He talks about leaving town and going to other cities to, to do the same thing, you know. And uh, Dylan hopes this will convince the NYPD and the Russian mafia that he's left town for good, which, of course, is too tidy. We know, you know, we know obviously that's not going to work. If you wanted to convince the media that you are um, the, the killer, I guess it would be, you know, either including some sort of physical evidence, you know, here's the gun, which notice, I mean, Dylan does, on the one hand, he does try to resign from his, his role as a vigilante. On the other hand, he does nothing decisive. He hides the gun. He doesn't, you know, destroy it or, or you know, toss it over a bridge. Um, and we, he hit it uh, toward the uh, middle of the last issue, you know, uh, back up in the attic, yeah. Yep, back up in the attic, yeah. And um, he's still leaving, um, very much leaving the door open, whether de- intentionally or not, deliberately or not, consciously or not. He's leaving the door open to go back if he needed to. And then I'm, I'm still, and and he could have, you know, included here's the murder weapon. Check the the the. Um, uh, check the ballistics. He didn't. He also could have presumably included details that only the killer would have known that the p- press hadn't published. Maybe maybe that was implied. But he didn't. He didn't close the door on being a vigilante. And he's also, I think, continuing to make, if not, yeah, making rookie mistakes that might come back to haunt him. On the one hand, he is typing from a a manual typewriter. Uh, uh, a letter so that, you know, presumably, um, no one can trace back where the letter came from, but that assumes that, that, you know, this typewriter in the attic, which presumably his, his dad used, that assumes that he, that his dad didn't use the typewriter for any, you know, that his dad wasn't 
haunted by the same demon, using the same gun, you know, 20, 30 years ago to kill his own own victims, and and the t- that same mechanical typewriter didn't come into play. So we do know from from the investigation from a few issues back that Dylan's gun, that that thirty eight, his dad's gun, is uncommon now, but common in the past, common in the seventies. You know, you right, it was a, easy to get on every street corner. I I do wonder if um if Dylan is not repeating not only the same methods but using the same materials that a previous vigilante did the most likely candidate being his own dad his, his yeah. own dad that's yeah that's interesting i hadn't thought of it in those terms that maybe his dad went down this exact same path um and ended up in the attic doing the exact same things that Dylan is doing wrestling with this 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 demon whether real or imagined that's a good point and uh, there's also right about this time that uh, Dylan mentions it being 2017. Um, I I mean I knew that this was a contemporary book. I think maybe this maybe is the first time they've actually said the year. Is that correct? I believe so. And yeah, that that actually gives us mentioning that it's 2017, mentioning Halloween, and Halloween does fall on a Tuesday this year. This that does let us um, establish something of a of a. Um, more concrete timeline for what for for this story, at least for the uh, the monthly killings. And I know later on in this issue, Dylan talks about why, you know, why September passes without an issue, and that would give us a chance when we get to that point to talk about the the, the timeline. I'm not quite sure even all that adds up. It's it's a compelling. It's so far been a compelling story in terms of character and in terms of uh, of of themes, but you know, you're you're writing a serialized, um, you know, thirty-page comic every every month. Some of the details might not always add up, and I think the timing, the schedule, um, the timeline of the killings might not add up either. But we'll get to that in a moment, I think. So. Yeah, and we find out. So Kira is back in the picture, and she's now red-haired. A red-haired Kira is back in the picture. So the blue hair is gone from uh, a couple issues ago. Um, and there was one question I had too regarding the art. Have you noticed, Bubba, that you know some of these shots? Um, and I don't know why it is, but some of feel like the characters are like separate from the background. So there's like the first panel where Kira shows up in the issue. It almost looks like if you took, you know, like paper cutouts and then glued it onto a backdrop. It almost feels like they're two on two separate planes. Um, and and I don't know why that is. And then like if you look right above that with Dylan in the coffee shop, Dylan in the background all kind of look like they're part of the same image. But I notice at times, and I like I said, I, I'm not an artist, so I don't know why that is. It's just something I've noticed. I think it might be the the coloring, because um, okay. if you look like even a couple pages further, um, after Dylan discovers the demon, uh, the second and third demon style, a uh, demon artwork, you see uh, Kira on the phone and. Presumably in her own apartment, and there she looks a little separated from the background. So, okay, yeah, it was just something interesting I noticed, and yeah, I didn't know if it was inking, coloring, but it it does seem to come and go, um, and so I didn't know necessarily why that was, but but yeah, so Dylan reveals to Kira that he uh, he did in fact break up with Daisy over her displaying his dad's art in the show, which is um, a good reason, if it's, even if it's not the real reason, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, 
And so Kira invites Dylan to a Halloween party. So here we get back to the Halloween thing that I was mentioning earlier. Um, we get lots of these uh, close-up expressive facial expressions and the, the exchange between Kira and Dylan. And it seems like uh, the scenes with Kira are where we, where we fall into this a lot, these extreme close-ups on their faces. So they have this conversation in a park. I don't know if it's Central Park, but um, it has that look to it. And uh, so anyway, Kira asks him out on, you know, kind of a date to this Halloween party. And Dylan, you know, is starting to feel like things are turning around. But of course, you know, things are going to go south quickly when when he starts to decide that, oh, hey, this is all coming together. And I've, I've you know, I'm done with the vigilante thing. Kira's back in the picture. And if, but of course, that night he, he gets extremely sick. Um, he thinks he has food poisoning, but when it sticks around, he, he starts convincing himself that, hey, you know, maybe it is the demon causing me to be sick. Maybe this whole thing is, is not in my head. So this prompts Dylan to start digging through his dad's old artwork, and he finds two more illustrations with the demon in them, um, including the image that we were uh, prognosticating about uh, on the last episode um, of the woman applying makeup in front of the mirror. Yep. So now we know uh, where that image comes into context. It's it's something. It's uh, an old piece of his dad's artwork. And and um, both that artwork and there was the the second piece, which was uh, black and white, the demon kind of hovering over this house in the woods. Yeah. Both of those ended up. Um, in my own, you know, I'm theorizing that that the sequence was this: is that that Sean Phillips created such beautiful artwork. You know, separate to paste into this page, just as with the uh, the the you know hellscape um, orgy, uh, which is the first the first of his artwork where we see the demon, that he created such striking artwork that he and Ed Brubaker found another use for him. So both of those artwork uh, pieces of artwork, if you like them a lot, and I do, but if, if any of our readers or listeners do, and the, any of their readers, you might want to track down um, a, a special um, edition of the Volume 2 trade paperback. The uh, black and white um, wooded cabin picture um, it has been reprinted as a mini print drawn and signed by Sean Phillips. Um, included with the Volume 2 trade paperback for OK Comics, that same comic book shop in Leeds, England, that um, is doing uh, Femme Fatale beer. And then Dublin's Big Bang Comics is um, selling a, a variant of uh, Volume 2 with an exclusive cover, you know, cover art from Issue 8 rather than Issue 5. And the book plate uh, showing um, the uh, the demon over the, uh, the woman at her... Uh, at her vanity, so, so that's Big Bang Comics and uh, Forbidden Planet in the UK, and I believe both of them are are available online and and are still um, still in stock. But yeah, really, really interesting artwork. Um, but as interesting as the artwork is, I think the the more interesting question is is its origin. You know, I did did Dylan's dad draw these and then. The the science fiction and horror writers wrote stories based on the drawings. Did they fit together after the fact? Is there is there more backstory to to any of these particular uh, pieces of artwork? Um, 
is, it, is there more that that we're going to find out that we and more that we should find out? I'd be really interested to know, for instance, if all three of these um, pieces of art were associated with stories written by the same writer. Is that is that writer still alive? Could Dylan track him down and find out find out more about those those art those pieces of artwork, whether they came unbidden from his dad? So. Yeah, this whole yeah this whole angle with his dad, um, and this demon showing up in his artwork is 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 really intriguing to me. And uh, yeah, how cool would it be to get if they did like one of their oversized um, comics, like we got in the magazine format, with you know this artwork in it? You know, basically like a reprinting of uh, a magazine from that era. That would be kind of a cool little project too. And a, and a uh, Lovecraftian story attached to it as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that the image of the woman and her vanity. I'm looking at that again. Um, and that montage there uh, with the three images, the first one is Dylan looking down at the artwork, and then there's two close-ups of each of those images from the previous page, and then the narration is on the, is, is on the sidebar. That's probably my favorite page in the whole book. That montage is great. And that, yeah, the picture of the demon and the vanity, it's... It's really cool. She's looking into a mirror, um, but you can see the demon's outline behind the mirror, which is a which is a cool thing. So you can see the woman's reflection, but you can still see the demon, who's not behind her, but behind the mirror. Um, so yeah, that's it's quite striking. And I think the uh, impression we're supposed to get from this image is that the that <laughs> Dylan's looking at the demon, and the demon's looking back. <laughs> Yeah, it's this is totally intriguing. This is a cool angle, and uh, yeah, I would like to see Dylan's dad um, coming into this comic somehow, whether it be a flashback or you know some weird twist where his dad's not dead. You know, I don't know. I I would like to. I'm, I'm intrigued by that angle, and I would like to see more of it. And and I've got a feeling that we are going to see see more of it um, after this after this issue. Yeah, it does seem like that's. Uh, Maybe likely. Well, and we have have reason to as well. Um, I guess I didn't think it it was a news item, but definitely worth mentioning that on Twitter, uh, Sean Phillips has posted two work in progress, uh, uh, two images of the same um, piece of artwork, first in progress and then apparently finished. And it's this hooded cultist type guy with a a curved sword or dagger um, standing over. Whoever you know, your perspective looking down on you, hand, one hand over you, the the other hand with the uh, sword or dagger raised, and um, and Sean Phillips hasn't said anything more about about this artwork. Um, there's been a reply, you know, can't wait to see Killer Be Killed get all culty and squiddy, and you know nobody and Sean hasn't hasn't corrected you know anybody's comments the way he did for. Um, when he when he announced that the um, Rita Hayworth artwork was not for Killer Be Killed, he you know he when somebody assumed it was for a back issue, he tweeted back, "No, different project." And we eventually found out what. But um, if yeah, are you are you on Twitter right now, Robert? I can pull it up. Yeah, this is this is worth actually taking a moment uh, to to talk about here during the course of this podcast, and I'll definitely uh, point readers to it. Uh, from the blog as well, but uh, twitter.com slash Sean P. Phillips. 
Yeah, it puts you in mind of Fatal, doesn't it? It really, really does. <laughs> it but, really does, in a good way. But, and it is, a, it, it, I assume it's a detail of a much larger, or a somewhat larger piece. Look at the upper right corner. Does that look like a familiar yeah. grimace? Yeah, I definitely recognize those teeth. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah, the plot is continuing to thicken. And, and Sean Phillips does a hell of a job teasing his artwork to um, to readers. It's one of the reasons why I haven't minded his the the artwork he's posted for the um, for that Spirit newspaper, even from other artists. He does a really good job of teasing without spoiling. And yeah, <laughs> no, that's great that those teeth have become that distinctive that that you can just have some, just a hint of them above there, but it's it's obvious that it's those same teeth. So, so Dylan, he sees these two bits of artwork and he begins to question the conclusion from the end of the last issue and from the end of the second arc that the demon's just a, uh, just a delusion. In that page, and that probably is the best page of the, the issue, um, and we probably maybe even should start a uh, segment highlighting the best page. And It's one of these pages that kind of blurs the line between comic book and, and illustrated prose. Yeah, and, yeah, and and it's um, throughout this issue. This it, it only this sort of technique only appears once or twice an issue. Usually with the full page splash, a single panel splash page. Yeah, this and is both different. times in this issue. Yeah, both times. The first time it was him walking and walking from his psychiatrist, and it was uh, two panels of of him in the uh, suburbs of. What was it? Westchester, the suburbs of Westchester in the fall, and here it's you know, demon or uh, Dylan looking at the demon and the demon looking back in three panels. So, quite striking. And so, so yeah, this is the frame of mind that Dylan's in. Um, but his fever breaks that night, and again he he decides, oh no, the whole demon thing was ridiculous. And this is after he started questioning, like he started putting it together that he did in fact kill two people in August. So maybe that was why he was fine in September. Yep. When when he was sick, and and that gives um, and then finally getting to the question of the timeline, that gives us a pretty clear timeline of what what took place in August. He killed two people, Rex and Bogdan, um, and he had missed uh, killing the uh, the white collar crook, the or not the white collar crook, the lobbyist, the jogger um, in the park, and he said that you know that and that jogger. Uh, Gideon Prince. He had two days left to find a uh, another target, and he ended up, you know, killing um, Rex and the Russian Bogdan pretty much just in time. Uh, September was a skip month. We'll see that he kills again before the the end of this month, before of October. And I think this does give us at least implicitly some clarity on what the the demon's rules are when he says a month. I'm guessing the and it's the easiest explanation. It's a, it's a calendar month. One in January, one in February, one in March, one in in April, et cetera, et cetera. As opposed to you know lunar months, you know by the next full moon, every 28 days or every 30 days or every 31 days. Um, but if you if you try to construct a timeline from this, and I and I did. Oh, well, his first kill was apparently in April. Matt, Mark McLaren, the uh, the older brother uh, of his friend who is revealed to be a, a, a child molester. In May, he killed his first Russian, Nico, the guy with the um, at the strip club. In June, he killed the uh, Bronx dog killer. 
um, and we find out that was two months after uh, Mark McLaren, according to the uh, um, the detective's side of the story uh, with, with Lily Sharp. In July, he killed uh, Barry Jamiston, um, who is basically the, uh, the white-collar crook, the um, – the Ponzi scheme guy killed him in the uh, in the men's room of the diner, um, and in August, two P- the Rex and the other Russian Bogdan, September and nobody, uh, and it's so a skip month, so he kills two and gets gets a month off, and then October nobody. The biggest thing is that when you're reading the story, it's still snowing by the t- you know by the time Dylan not only kills um, the child molester Mark. But the uh, the first Russian Nico, and it it kind of stretches credibility that it's still snowing in New York City in May, and the and the story does later say that that uh, or um, Dylan does later say that um, in issue five that uh, they basically went from winter directly to to summer. That winter lasted almost the whole spring, and we went from snow to a heat wave. It's still the case, you know. If you look up the um, National Weather Service, actually has a uh, little um, table of monthly and annual snowfall at Central Park. Um, it's still the case that that April tends to be the last month in New York where they get snow, not May. May they occasionally get a trace amount, but you know, in April, over the last you know 150 years, you'll get the occasional month with um, with, with even a foot of snow. In April, and it just it doesn't quite line up. But I'm not sure this story is intended to be read in the kind of detail that a a, a neurotic, you know, OCD reader like myself applies to it. So yeah, I was gonna say I will I will gladly <laughs> overlook uh, maybe the uh, fudge timeline just because those uh, snowy streets were so gorgeous in the oh, network. Yeah. So oh, definitely, um, that's and, a good trade off. And 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 it's and the comparison would be would would be. Um, to uh, probably my favorite television show of all time, my so-called life, is that little things come up of, you know, about what day of the of the week it is. Uh, that, you know, if you go through, you know, u- Uber fans, that you'll see that sometimes the thing doesn't line up, but the characterization, the emotion, the storytelling is so is so real and so right. That it doesn't that it doesn't matter, and in this case, yeah. If I wasn't OCD, I probably wouldn't have picked up on it myself. So, <laughs> yeah. And I was thinking with the uh, with the um, killing somebody once a month and then missing a month after you get caught up. Like, there's got to be an analogy there between that and a and a comic creator that does monthly comic books in some way. I think it's like. You know, if you miss a month and then the fans are jumping on you, it's like, hey, but I put out two last month. You know, yeah. what do you want from me? You know what yep. I mean? Like, we're catching up when we can. And, um, yeah, I, I was originally going to – to um, originally wondering what, whether this comic book was going to be a monthly series in terms of, of real time, in terms of the time it conveyed. So we did would see a kill a month. Um, but, you know, much like um, the uh, the – very early criminal arc, the second arc, uh, Lawless, actually had a heist in every issue. That was part of its um, uh, part of a uh, uh, of its unique structure. And in this case, no. But by going back to that original scene, um, that 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 flash forward, where uh, Dylan takes out what is it, four guys? 
you now begin thinking, oh, he just he just bought himself the spring or whenever it takes place. Yeah, he's so, wor- he's working ahead. He's an overachiever at that point. Yeah, so so good good for him. So yeah, it's just you know. <laughs> You know that a comic artist's life has to be kind of ruled by those monthly divisions when they're putting out a monthly book, um, you know, particularly the artist, just because I know the, the time involved in putting out a monthly book. So that's interesting that they used the monthly thing with, with Dylan's kills. And another interesting point is, uh, despite what both of us were predicting several months ago, Mason is somehow still around. We, you know, we, we get like one glimpse of him in the apartment while uh, Dylan's walking around in his in his stupor and he's thinks he has food poisoning. We just see like Mason watching TV or something. So, um, and being a really good friend and roommate at that point. So really being there. Yeah. For him, so <laughs> yeah, he looked, he looked, he looked disgusted at, uh, at Dylan walking by with a blanket wrapped around him or whatever it was. So, but anyway, Dylan, you know, getting back to the book, um, Dylan's fever does in fact break that night. Um, so he again thinks that the demon thing was ridiculous and ends up deciding to go to the Halloween party with Kira. So he has to hunt up a Halloween costume at the last minute, um, and he settles for the uh, tried-and-true Richard Nixon mask. Um, and then there was a there was another little interesting Friday the 13th spoiler that popped up in the issue. And so once again, that that falls back into my, my kind of Halloween-themed issue, is there's a—he mentions Friday the 13th. Um, and he's—so he goes into—he's in the, the cafe that Kira works at, and he's talking to the barista there who's also in costume, who doesn't know who Richard Nixon is. Um, I think he calls him Gothic Death Boy, yeah. which I thought was kind of funny. And and, and, uh, and I'm surprised that um, Dylan didn't kill him out of principle. So, Yeah, well, yeah, if he hadn't been in a cafe, you could tell, uh, even through the Richard Nixon mask, that he was really ticked off that he didn't know who Richard Nixon was. Yeah. Um, in a really and, so Dylan, and, and a really great choice, you know, if, if, this, is a, if this entire series is a kind of a take on stories like death wish you know if you want to go go old school nixon's a great choice so yeah and dylan uh i thought it was funny too this this russian guy that comes into the story then of course he knew he knew who richard nixon was when when dylan confronts him but the the barista the the millennial hipster behind the um coffee shop counter did not but yeah so dylan overhears this guy with the russian accent asking this barista if someone named kira worked there um, so, of course, that gets his attention. But it was pretty ingenious for uh, Ed and Sean to have it be Halloween. So Dylan's wearing a mask so he can safely stand there and hear what this guy is saying without being seen. I thought that was a that was a pretty ingenious plot twist. Um, so th- at this point, Dylan realizes, like, hey, the Russians are definitely still after me and are narrowing it down quickly if they know who Kira is um, and are obviously using Kira to try to get back to Dylan. So they're putting the pieces together quickly. Um, and at this point, Dylan approaches the Russian guy outside in his car. And uh, the Russian tries to play it off and says, like, oh, hey, Kira, Kira's boyfriend is an old roommate from college. And uh, Dylan impulsively reaches through the car window and stabs the guy in the throat, killing him. Um, so obviously he is um, off the wagon at this point. But then he cleans off the knife and sticks it in a jack-o'-lantern. And we get this kind of classic shot of this this uh, collapsed jack-o'-lantern with the knife sticking out of it. In the last line, he says, that's how everything started to get crazy again. So that teases teases the reader as to what is to come. Yeah, and I, and I think the last, this entire last scene, but really the last three pages, are just um, 
just brilliant. Number one, in terms of, of how the um, killing is set up, is that you don't you don't see Dylan grab a knife. You see him, you see almost his window dressing. You see him walk through a kitchen. You see a stack of dirty plates, you know, um, with with a knife on it. But you don't see the knife disappear. You just see that as a, um, in passing, um, and you you know one of the beauties of comic books, particularly if you get the the page layout right, where you turn the page and that's where the surprise is. Dylan says that he doesn't believe him. No, and then just turn the page and there he has the knife and is uh, stabbing stabbing the uh, the Russian in the jugular. So. Yeah, I was completely caught off guard by this kill. Um, I did not see it coming at all. It was not telegraphed at all, I didn't think. Um, and then looking back, yeah, like you said, when he's going through the kitchen, there's just like a close-up of like a, um, you know, a dirty dish there, some, you know, with, with silverware and some, you know, remnants of, from dinner on this stack of plates. But but I did not see this kill coming at all. So it was, it was the timing of it was perfect with the turn, with the page turn. Yeah, and and I think we saw between the last issue wrapping wrapping up um, uh, that that second arc and Dylan's decision to give up the vigilante business. You know, this is this is even if it kills him, he's getting he's um, going to get it, it's coming too close. He's going to get friends and family killed. You know, Rex was just a, a warning of of that impending doom. He decides to give give that up. He decides to quote unquote retire, but you know doesn't do so decisively in terms of getting rid of the murder weapons or anything. But even with the 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 sense of dread that is still in this issue, the Halloween theme, the discovery of the new artwork where the the demon continues to look seem to look through the page at at Dylan. Um, with this, we see Dylan beginning to to lower his guard. He's reconnecting with Kira. He's going to go out on a on a date with her, that sort of thing. He's wearing a a mask, be, not because he's trying to hide, but because he's Halloween. It's it's sheer uh, coincidence or luck that he was able to to stumble across uh, this mobster and get close without being noticed. And then he just turns on the uh, sociopathy. He he turns it on in an instant. And that last bit of dialogue or last bit of narration, you know, that's how the, everything started to get crazy again. The text box before that, the narration box before that, it, you know, him cleaning the knife. So anyway, <laughs> so anyway, that's how everything started to get crazy again. Yeah, and I feel like in, I in feel case like, you were wondering. So <laughs> I feel like this scene is the beginning of Dylan's transition into this, you know, this badass hitman that we see at the in that opening scene because I mean yeah, I mean there's like he said, there's no there's no second guessing, there's no struggle, it's just boom, it's done. You know, and so it's it's almost like a different kind of Dylan. We in the past, you know, these kills we've seen this kind of uh, mental back and forth that he's struggling with or he struggled with the kill itself and things have went awry. Um but that's not what we're seeing here. So this may be a turning point in uh, his temperament and his 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 skill level at this bizarre thing that he's doing. Yeah, he's definitely been been adding to the experience points. He's leveling up, and yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. this is a much more visceral kill than any any that we've seen before. Um, you know, him not using using a gun 
I mean, just you know, stabbing in the jugular with 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 Out without hesitation on the street. Yeah. Yep, without hesitation, remorse, hes- hesit- uh, without any any fear about doing so, and then just calmly walks away, cleans the knife, stabs it in a rotting jack o' lantern, and starts calling Kira. <laughs> yeah, and it, that's the other interesting point that I was going to make is that yeah, he immediately calls Kira and says like, "Oh, hey, let me know the address. He's coming to the party." So. Um, it seems that his concerns about his loved ones maybe aren't as high a priority at this point. You know what I mean? He's immediately, after killing this guy right in front of a cafe um, at a seemingly you know, normal hour, he's heading straight to a party where Kira's at. So it uh, definitely will be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, looking forward to it, yeah. And, uh, and, I, and I love their ability for uh, Sean and, and Ed's ability to take an issue that seems like a return to normalcy and in just a couple short pages just turn up the tension turn up the ultra violence and get us back on track so yeah this was a strong issue yeah we'll shift into our monthly recommendations that we uh, try to add in for each episode just uh, various you know whether it be a film tv show comic whatever we are kind of enjoying at this moment um, I'm going to go back in time a little bit with my recommendation um, and recommend a specific X-Files episode from uh, Season 5. Uh, the show, the episode is called Postmodern Prometheus. Um, it was the fifth episode of the fifth season um, of X-Files, which obviously I was a big fan back in the day uh, and have been revisiting the episodes through Hulu in recent times. And uh, this one jumped out at me. It's a It's a standalone episode. It's not part of the the so-called myth arc episodes that are centered on aliens and government conspiracies that, that ran through the whole series. So rather this is a, a, you know, a standalone monster of the week episode. And there's a little bit of a comic book angle to it. So I thought it would fit well with the podcast. Um, The cold open of the show opens with the viewer being taken, taken into a black and white comic book entitled the great mutado. And so that's the setup. Um, for the episode. This episode was written and directed by uh, Chris Carter, who is the series creator. And I think, just looking back at the Wikipedia page, it says it was nominated for seven awards at the 1998 Emmys and won one. So yeah, we're, this episode is almost exactly 20 years old. Um, it originally aired on November 30th, 1997. Um, and yeah, I was just, uh, this one really, like I said, I've been revisiting the series periodically, and this one just really jumped out at me. It's a really, really strong episode. Um, one interesting thing to note, it was produced by Vince Gilligan, who had a large hand in, in Season 5 of The X-Files. I think he wrote um, about 30 episodes total of the show. Vince Gilligan, of course, went on to uh, create Breaking Bad, which, of course, everyone knows in, in subsequent years. But the Great Mutado is this elephant man kind of type creature that has become sort of an urban myth in this town that we that were that the agents find themselves in. Um, some of the people are skeptical that he even exists um, and dismissive of it, while others are sure that he does exist. And the whole episode is is shot in this kind of high contrast black and white with lots of shadows. Um, definitely piggybacks off of the classic Frankenstein story. And I, the subtitle for Shelley's original novel was called The Modern Prometheus. So this episode's title, The Postmodern Prometheus, is obviously an homage to that. Um, Izzy is a character that we're introduced to who is uh, an 18-year-old creator of the comic book. 
and he's writing about the great Mutado, who is this, um, like I said, this creature that that he he claims he's seen around town, and and his friends claim that they've seen around town. And Izzy's mom is attacked in her house while watching an episode of Jerry Springer, and ends up pregnant, and claims the same thing happened 18 years ago when she became pregnant with Izzy, who's now doing the comic book. And I read that uh, Chris Carter wrote this part of the mother with the hopes that Roseanne Barr would play the character, but it didn't pan out for whatever reason. And so there's this quirky, almost uh, Danny Elfman-esque soundtrack throughout the show, and then it uh, it transitions into a Cher song, and Cher ends up playing a fairly large part in the plot, which I won't necessarily give away, but um, Cher actually doesn't appear in the episode. But like I said, Cher's music um, plays a strong part in the plot. And uh, there's also this kind of mad scientist-type character played by uh, the actor that played Jay Peterman in Seinfeld, is how I recognized him. And it's not, you know, it's not mentioned necessarily enough, but The X-Files does humor extremely well. You know, they have some episodes that are just completely over the top, um, but this one is more subtle. It's just, and that's why I liked it so much. It's got this perfect balance of, like, these quirky small-town characters. It's got some horror tropes mixed in. Um, some noir elements, and then, you know, some some Fox Mulder one-liners, but it's never distracting from the plot, and it's got a surprisingly emotional and satisfying ending. So it's a fun episode for somebody to check out, and like I said, because it's not part of their uh, mythology episodes, it's an easy one just to just to jump on one episode, put in 45 minutes, and it's just a very satisfying television show. And The X-Files is, is interesting, you know, just because of its impact, I think, on on television and the current state of television particularly. Um, you know, the modern television landscape of these short-run series, um, these uh, dense story arcs, you know, that are serialized in a way that, you know, I think that kind of started with the X-Files. They they did a lot of that while mixing in, you know, they were kind of that bridge between the traditional long-form television series where you'd have 30, ep- you know, 25 to 30 episodes a season um, to what we have now where people will do these, you know, these runs of like eight episodes a season or whatever, kind of the HBO method of TV. And just a lot of the the writers from the show went on to develop or produce their own highly influential series, like like I mentioned, Vince Gilligan, um, who of course first saw Brian Cranston in a season six episode of The X-Files called Drive, which led to his casting in Breaking Bad. Um, Howard Gordon was a producer, worked on X-Files before creating Homeland. Um, some of the guys from American Horror Story started at the X-Files. So it's just kind of interesting where it falls in its place in the, the evolution of TV. TV was a much less adventurous place in 1997 than it is now, um, which I think is another reason why this episode is so good. And it's got it's got one of the absolute best endings that I've seen in any television show. It's funny, it's emotional, and it's creative. Uh, so yeah, I highly recommend, like I said, it's a it's a... It's a great episode to just jump in. It's very enjoyable. It's it's funny. It's quirky. Um, it's got some like Twin Peaks elements happening in it. But um, yeah, that's, so that's the postmodern Prometheus from season five of the X Files. So that's something to check out if you find yourself on Hulu. Well, my recommendation is also looking looking backwards a little bit. Um, it's a, a sci-fi comic book, Strange Science Fantasy, uh, written and drawn by uh, Scott Morse um, back in uh, 2010. And the reason, a big reason to bring this up is 
this is not only the centenary of uh, of Will Eisner's birth; uh, it's also the uh, centenary of of the pretty much the other giant of comic books, uh, Jack Kirby. Um, Kirby was born on August twenty eighth, nineteen seventeen. Um, uh, Jacob Kurtzberg, known professionally as Jack Kirby, um, and very influential. Um, uh, com- uh, comic book creator, first at Marvel, then at DC, uh, responsible for for Captain America and the Inhumans at Marvel. Um, well, a lot of the the big comic, a uh, lot of the big characters at Marvel, and then you know the uh, the New Gods and Commandy and Omac at DC, and so there's been quite a bit of. Um, celebratory comic books being released because of this uh, 100th anniversary of his birth. Um, one thing I would recommend in passing is one thing that, that my local comic book shop does for me is uh, they hold an, a copy of every, every comic book that comes in that is $1 or less, you know, the, because quite a few publishers release $1 comic books, reprints uh, of older books to, to kind of, let you uh, uh, dip your toes in the water and, and um, really introduce yourself to either old, very old titles, very new titles. Uh, and um, Image does uh, an, a, a series called Image Firsts, where it's the first issue reprinted. That's how I got um, really hooked by uh, Rick Remender's uh, Black Science, um, as opposed to Black Magic, Black Science. Um, uh, basically sliders on acid so so jumping from one dimension to another um but it's also marvel would release you know quite a few spider-man books right before the 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 most recent movie spider-man homecoming came out and they released um 12 uh one dollar reprints of uh, kirby works so you have avengers uh captain america groot thor versus hulk uh ant-man and the wasp um, and of course, the most important Marvel character, uh, Devil Dinosaur. And you know, it, I would just recommend readers pick pick up one dollar issues, these reprints when you can, um, just because you know they're they're worth worth that a bit amount of money to basically see what what uh, the publishers have created in the past and see what they're they're trying to introduce to a wider audience now. And they're, they're always a good good view. Um, at the same time, DC has been doing a um, a uh, series called Commandy Challenge, where an artist and creator is uh, works on e- on one issue for a you know it's a, a twelve issue twelve month little uh, mini series um, where it sw- switches from one creative team to the next, where each team has to resolve the previous cliffhanger um, that the the last team set up. And then set up their own, you know, impossible cliffhanger at the end for the for when they pass the baton the baton to the new uh, writer and artist, and that's been a fun read, but nothing that I, I think I would recommend, you know, in the podcast the way I would uh, Strange Science Fantasy. But um, one of the the artists in an essay in the back mentions that you know that um, that. Uh, mentioned uh, this this quote uh, relating to Jack Kirby, his influence in his comics. She writes, this is uh, Marguerite Bennett, 
that recently two friends of mine overheard the announcement of the appearance of several iconic Jack Kirby characters in a new title. The first was thrilled and expressed that bringing these characters back in 2017 was the greatest tribute to Kirby. The second responded with something that is sat perched and ruffling and never mooring on my shoulder for weeks. No, the only tribute to Kirby that matters is creating something new. And I'm not sure I would go quite so far as that being the only tribute that matters, but I think it, it is why I would recommend something like uh, Strange Science Fantasy much more more than uh, the latest, you know, title crossing, um, universe spanning uh, major event from either of the two big publishers. It's um, Strange Science Fantasy. It's it's. Kirby-esque sci-fi, not in the sense of using his characters or even in using his style, but in being so surprising and inventive, which I think is a real strength of sci-fi comics, whether it be um, uh, whether it be uh, AD After Death, which we reviewed at length in a in a previous mini episode, or uh, Planetoid, um, which is Kim Garing's. Um, more detailed world-building sci-fi comic, um, the second miniseries just wrapped just a couple weeks ago, or even you know going from creator-owned to licensed, you have uh, Transformers versus GI Joe, which has some very clear Kirby inspiration in its artwork, um, or you even have um, even have uh, DC's New Frontier, you know Darwin Cook's um, propulsive you know sci-fi superhero plot that that pushes things forward without flashback, where every uh, every s- scene leads to something new and unexpected, and um, the uh, the phrase that I I like is a phrase that that the uh, singer songwriter David Gray mentioned in approaching his latest album was that he was looking for a new path to the waterfall, a new approach to create um, great music, so that you're not creating the same music over and over again. And I've thought that Strange Science Fantasy really was. A new approach. Um, Scott Morse, uh, he's not a big name, uh, but he's been an art director for some Cartoon Network uh, series, I Am Weasel, Cow and Chicken. He's done storyboard work for quite a lot of Pixar works like uh, Ratatouille, WALL-E, Cars 2, and Brave. And he is actually a story supervisor for Cars 3, which came out over the summer. Um, and I've been going through some of his other books, particularly I've been stumbling across them in the, uh, in the discount bin at my lo- local store. Um, but, but I would, and I would mention briefly, one of them's, um, Volcanic Revolver, kind of a, a story set in the same era as Godfather Part Two, you know, a, a, a immigrant story in New York City involving the mafia. Um, Southpaw is one I think, uh, criminal readers might like is that it's, uh, it's about this, um, uh, the seedy underbelly of professional boxing where this guy is, uh, uh paid to, uh, to throw a fight, he chooses not to and takes the money and runs. Um, but the boxer happens to be this cartoonish tiger, and most of the of his opponents in the boxing ring are like you know robots. But it's a very serious story told in a very minimalist, whimsical way. But but this book, Strange Science Fantasy, um, each issue is a complete work uh, with very loose artwork compared to something much more. I guess detailed like like Sean Phillips' work or or Planetoid, um, but it's it's basically each issue tells an old school almost origin story of of an entirely new character. Um, when when the book came out, uh, Scott Morse had an interview with uh, Comic Book Resources where where 
you know, he explained the origins of this series is that he had published the first two stories out of six on his blog, uh, making the strips available for a brief time, printed them in a limited edition of only 50 copies, a piece of Comic-Con International, and then um, reprinted the original stories um, with newly edited re- with newly edited reprints and moving on to new material. And um, it's basically – He's going back to the idea of, and quoting him here, of storytellers from uh, uh, that seemed hell bent on telling fun stories, not on creating franchises. And quoting him, franchises, of course, fell out of them. And you know, you're thinking Captain America, Iron Man, that sort of thing. The franchises fell out when they hit on something that had legs, but they were first and foremost entertaining themselves. Uh, it seemed. I know that they had uh, quotas and were at the end of the day selling books, but they were also honing a craft that fa- that's fallen away. Short form, economic character development and storytelling through the use of iconography and archetype. I want to tell fun stories, shooting from the hip, keeping them organic is letting me letting me explore classic myth relationships and archetypes in a way that a long form storyline might prove a disservice. And these are very quick stories. It's it's three widescreen panels uh, on most of the pages with just narration under each um, under each page. And the and you know I was I stumbled across these books back in 2010 just for, through the monthly issues, and I think, honestly, this is one of the few series that is at least as rewarding in the monthly version as it is uh, collected. And I was just – I was caught by the covers. Um, the covers give you the premise, and and the premise is <laughs> enough to get you into the story. You know, The very first issue was about um, the gearheads and the headlight, um, where you see this, this guy, this – seemingly human figure with a with a headlight a car headlight for his head and he and the uh, front cover asks will you uh live to see the dawn of the gearheads who is the headlight the future of sci-fi built from the past and then um in a subsequent issue the shogunat part shogun shogun part astronaut um i think uh criminal fans would especially like uh, the third issue was um, the projectionist. How's this for a blockbuster? The projectionist versus the silent scheme. Celluloid from the void. It's a it's a noir story. It's a Hollywood noir. It's a single issue Hollywood noir, much like um, much like the fade out, except the projectionist who works at a movie theater instead of the movie studios is a guy with an actual projector on his head, um, and he has to work his way through the studio system and and. All of the other characters in the studio are, are almost living personifications of what, what they do. You know, one, one of them is the key grip, and his hands are literal keys. And it's, it's, it's goofy and over-the-top and bombastic and entertaining on every page. Um, the, the one uh, story I would – the last story I would mention would be uh, from issue four – a uh, giant soldier, gigantic, <laughs> and um, a review of the uh, of the of this entire series focuses on that one story and talks about talks about the narration and says that the narrator, the only voice in the comic, is pretty entertaining. And this is from FullStop.net.net that the narrator is. Uh, Pretty entertaining. Unlike much comic nar- narration, Scott Morse seems to be in character. It's tongue-in-cheek, wax poetry, and every page giggles. 
and he gives them proof. This one was all for all mankind. Gigantic. Oh, how lofty the view from a table turned. Let these cherubs of doom find their voices now. Sing. They fled to their temples, tried to save their totems, their souls, but nothing could hide from the eyes of gigantic, especially not the truth. So it's over the top. It's overblown. What this reviewer says is like Stan Lee's prose, the writing is over the top and totally engaging. At its core, science... Uh, Strange Science Fantasy tells tales of humans struggling against the gods, against the establishment, and against themselves. It's right out of the pulp origins of the modern comic book, and it's fun. And I could hardly say it better myself. Um, Again, it's uh, Strange Science Fantasy by Scott Morse. A uh, trade paperback collection came out from IDW collecting all six issues. Um, And each of the monthly issues came with a single-page almost retelling of the same story. Uh, by Paul Pope, um, famous for like ba- uh, Batman Year 100 and very much a punk rock kind of art style to, to his work. And those those uh, one pieces are re- are single pages are reprinted in the collection. And we also see um, some of artwork of concepts that that don't make it to this series that just fire up the imagination um, anymore, uh, even more than than just the stories themselves. And in the uh, in the trade paperback, Morse uh, mentions that the uh, the inspiration is the pure comics vibe generated by Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, Alex Toff, Jack Cole, and the countless other conjurers of pre-hero stories. I wanted to try try to tap into that insane, bold, courageous mindset made famous by these heroes of mine. There was an air of excitement surrounding these old stories, a notion of making crazy ideas viable on the page, and I definitely think because the art style is, you know, very rough and very, very wild. And because the stories are so unrestrained by by any sense of, you know, decency, propriety, that it's that it is very over the top. That, you know, your mileage may vary. You might want to look at a preview before before getting into this book. But if you if you like it a little bit, you're probably going to like it a lot. You're probably going to adore the book. And again, it's uh, strange science fantasies. Um, published by Scott Morse in 2010 from uh, IDW Comics. Yeah, there you have it, folks. That's our episode for uh, this month on Killer Be Killed number 11. Uh, We are going to hustle and try to get this thing out before uh, issue number 12 comes out later this week. So we will be back in a month or so to revisit uh, Killer Be Killed number 12, and we will... uh, continue bringing these things to you as always you can find our episodes at undertow.podbean.com or on itunes you can uh, reach us on twitter or undertowpodcast at gmail.com thanks folks we will see you in a few weeks Breath I take and breath I give Pray the day ain't poison Stand among the ones that live in lonely indecision Our fingers walk the darkness down Line us on the midnight Gather up a go You find a fool that's on the moonlight If you try to take it home Your hands are turned to butter Better leave his dream alone Try to find another 
Salvation sat and crossed herself and called the devil partner. Wisdom burned upon a ship who killed the raging cancer. Sealed the river at its mouth, take the waters prisoner. Fill the sky with screams and cries, bleeding by the answer. 